Thanks, Adam. My name is Ben. I'm the missions pastor here at Liberty Christian Fellowship. And this year's World Cup revealed a clash of identities for me. The final is happening at this very moment. Um, but I can see we don't have a lot of soccer fans that you guys decided still to come to this service, which is great. Uh, I was born in Canada, and at the time, my dad was a Canadian citizen. My mom was an American citizen. Uh, Canada never made it to the World Cup, and so my dad was born to Dutch parents. They were still Dutch citizens when he was born in 1954. And so we cheer for Holland, and so in this World Cup, there was Canada, there was the U.S., and there was Holland that all made it. Uh, thankfully, none of those teams had to face off against each other, but it definitely revealed some of my heritage. Now, as a kid, I remember my dad's parents, and we called them Paka and Beppa. Those are Frisian words for grandpa and grandma. And by the way, there's a little debate out on how to pronounce my last name, whether Wagner or Wagenar. I do know in Frias, it's Benjamin Acha Wagenar, so you can call me that whenever you want to do that. <laughs> My Beppa always said, there's only one Benjamin Acha, and I loved that. I loved when she said that to me. Anyways, I remember my Paca and my Beppa would talk about their history, uh, including their immigration from Holland to Canada in 1952. I only know 1952 because uh, my dad told us that later on. At the time, as a kid, I never really had much interest in those stories. Now, to be fair, I was a kid. I had kid stuff to do. My Beppa had an antique uh, pump organ in the basement that I had to mash down on the keys while maybe a cousin or brother was uh, pumping the pedals. But I regretted not listening to those stories because I knew that they would help me understand my heritage, my dad, and even myself. And as we approach Christmas, I want to ask you, are you listening? Are you listening to the true eternal story? that is unfolding right now. Not just about the story of the baby in the manger, but why the baby in the manger came. Why the baby in the manger changed everything for you and for me. We're gonna continue our series today on uh, gaining a better understanding of the biblical basis for some of the Christmas songs that we sing commonly during this season. Today's song is going to be O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. The words for this song were written around the 8th century AD. These verses were used in monastic services in the days that were leading up to Christmas, and it was sung or chanted in an antiphonal way, meaning that there would be a scripture that was read, and then there would be a response of one of these seven verses leading up to Christmas. <clears throat> A compilation of five of these were put together around the 12th or 13th century AD, including our current refrain that would be between the verses. But an English translation with the melody we have today wasn't written until 1851 by the Reverend John Mason Neal. Now, each of the verses begins with a title for Jesus, a messianic title, which derives from the Old Testament. And it's a call to, for us to... Uh, worship who Jesus is, what he has done at his first advent. But it's also a call for us to, to invite the Lord to come back, for the Lord to return. And so for this sermon, I want to do this in two parts. First, I want to talk about two of the titles that were given to Jesus in this song. And then in the second part, I want to provide a biblical roadmap on what it means to look at the second advent of Christ this season. And we'll do that out of the book of Philippians. So part one, 
We needed Jesus to come to us. We needed God himself to come to us and rescue us from our sins. Now, this first title for Jesus in the song, uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is Emmanuel, a Hebrew word meaning God with us. The Gospel of Matthew uses this title to explain why Jesus received the name Jesus. It's that he would save his people from their sins, but it wasn't just anybody that could do that. It was God himself. It was a baby that was born to a virgin that she would conceive by the Holy Spirit. And so this fulfillment of a prophecy was that God himself would come and rescue his people. And this prophecy from Isaiah 7, many of you know, was given at a time when uh, Judah, unfaithful, rebellious Judah, they were about to be attacked by the Arameans and the northern Israelites. They, these two northern nations were banding together to come attack Judah. Ahaz and the people of Judah were, it said, they were shaking like trees. And Isaiah met Ahaz and gave him a word from God. And that word was that those two nations would not destroy Judah. That they would be protected. They would be saved. So then the Lord tells Ahaz to ask God for a sign that this would come true, to bolster his faith. But Ahaz refuses, showing his unbelief. His external piety revealed a rebellious heart. And he tests God in this moment. So God in his grace gives him a sign anyway. And we know this commonly at this season. Therefore, in Isaiah 7:14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. That is, this boy would show the people of Judah that the Lord would save them from captivity, from destruction. Now, Ahaz's belief, unbelief, in that moment. His testing God in that moment revealed that actually something else needed to happen within God's people. That it wasn't a circumstantial salvation that they really needed. It was a greater salvation. Something that would save their hearts from sinfulness. And this is what Matthew picks up as he records this Christmas story. You would give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And it's not as though there is this line of kings in Israel and one of those can champion God's people. That is, can, can save them, can establish the kingdom of God, righteousness in the land. There is no human being found faithful to do that. And so that prophecy in Isaiah looks towards a time in which God himself would come. God himself would come to Israel. God himself would come to you and to me to rescue us from our sins. For these two titles that we talk about, I want us to do just a short antiphonal uh, reciting of the verse. And so I'll say the first line and you guys will say the second. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. The second title used in the song is Dayspring. 
That is, we needed God himself to come and bring his light into our darkness. This word dayspring is derived from a Latin word that means dawn or rising. And we can actually continue in the book of Isaiah. We don't have to go much farther to see where this word is derived from. In Isaiah 9, verse 2 and 6 and 7, you're welcome to turn there. This is also a uh, common reading at Christmas time as we talk about the advent of Jesus. And it says this in Isaiah 9. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. And if we move down to Isaiah 9, 6. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. And the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. God himself would exalt himself over all evil. That is the light that is shining in the darkness. It is about God's glory. And all that stands opposed to that glory will be overcome. Now, see that last line in Isaiah 9. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. There is no human being that could ever establish perfectly God's glory on the earth. Again, when we look at the people of Israel, the people of Judah at this time, at the kings who were supposed to be the establishers of righteousness and justice in the land, knowing the law of the Lord, there was nobody that could be found that is worthy to establish God's glory on earth as it is in heaven. No one. And so this line is actually repeated several times in Isaiah. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. God himself needed to do that. And do it in such a way and with such grace. It wasn't about wiping humanity from the earth. It was actually about saving humanity. And giving them new hearts and forgiving their sin and calling them to worship him forever. What a gracious God. Let's recite this next verse. O come thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. When John Mason Neal published this song, he noted Uh, that the melody came from French sources. So not only are the French great at soccer, but apparently they're good musicians as well. Now, I don't know the score of the game right now, but I think Argentina was up 1-0. Sorry, I may have just ruined your day. It took some experts to find what these French sources were. And so as these hymnists did some digging, they found the melody came from uh, a 15th century tune that was used as a funeral procession for Franciscan 
nuns. Now, why at Advent? Like, this is the happy time, like Christmas lights. Like, John, what were you doing using a funeral melody for your Christmas song? Like, that's not happy. And yet, I think with the intent of the song, it fits perfectly. It is a mournful tune. It's in a minor key. And yet, there is this refrain, rejoice, rejoice. This is because the story's not over. We celebrate the Lord's first advent and his finished work on our behalf. But we live in a world that still is full of darkness and decay and sin and death. And so this song and these words are a prayer of God's people for God to return again. When Paul wrote his letter to the church at Philippi, he was in chains for the gospel. And his audience, the Philippians, were at that time experiencing persecution because of the gospel. They were a religion that exalted Jesus as Lord and Savior, when at the time, Caesar declared himself, Kurios Kaisoter, Lord and Savior. And because they were a Roman, uh, a colony of Roman citizens, they were uh, called to worship of Caesar, and yet they would not, because there was only one Lord and Savior. And so they experienced persecution, and the letter shows that. But Paul reminds them, not only of who they are in Christ, because of Jesus' first advent, because of his death and resurrection, but also reminds them of the end of the story, when Jesus will set all things right. That truly this Lord and Savior can subject all things and will subject all things to himself. The famous passage in Philippians 2, that every knee will bow in heaven and on earth. Can you imagine for the Philippian church that is receiving persecution that would not bow the knee to Caesar, that they will know that all will bow to Jesus? So let's dive into the book of Philippians We are to live in light of Jesus' first and second advent. Turn to Philippians chapter 1, verse 3 through 6. And it says this, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That day of Christ Jesus is the return of Christ. We are to grow in the gospel because Emmanuel has come and is coming again. What is this good work that Paul was speaking about in these verses? It is the reception of the gospel. It is the gospel at work within them and their participation in the gospel, the the work of the gospel through them. This is always the foundation and building blocks for Paul. It's the gospel. This is where Christians 
become saved, when they hear the gospel and they believe. And that's why all my following points will say, in light of Jesus' first and second coming. That's an inseparable story. That good work mentioned here is not about how great of an athlete you become, whether or not you get married, if you're successful in your job, whether you're a missionary or in the marketplace, whether your kitchen is Instagram-worthy on a day-to-day basis. No, that good work that Paul is talking about, it's a heart that blesses the Lord in singleness or in marriage, with or without kids, when the house is clean or a mess, in poverty or prosperity. It is the heart that has received the finished work of Christ and has its heart set on the coming Savior. So let the gospel have its priority in your life, that it may work in you. Make deposits each day within your soul. Study it, meditate on it, understand it. Let it lead you in thanksgiving and worship. Tell it to one another. Build up one another. Build up your church. Build up your spouse, your family, your kids, your neighbors. You need to be fed the gospel in order for the gospel to have its effect in you. You need to be fed the gospel in order for the gospel to have its effect in you. And Paul talks about praying. And so pray that the gospel may work in you and those around you. Paul talks about praying always. This is quite hyperbolic language, but I I don't doubt that this is Paul's intent. He prays for them always, like his heart is to intercede on their behalf. And that's not because he's opening his letter in some kind of nicety for them. It's that he knows his prayers are having effect on the Philippian church. Prayer is one of the weakest things that we as believers do, or it can feel like one of the weakest things. And yet for Paul, as you look at his letters, it's one of his top priorities of ministry. I will pray for you. And we say that often in passing. I'll pray for you, brother. Pray for you, sister. And then we forget to do that. But for Paul, his standing before the throne of God, calling forth the promises of God on behalf of the people of God would have its effect. And he gives content to this prayer. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Notice the purpose clause in that. That the gospel would have its work in the Philippians until the day of Christ. That their hearts and their actions would be in agreement and alignment with the gospel until that day. Like that's the storyline that he is laying out. Now I can feel the Calvinists in the room chomping at the bit right now, wanting me to get to the good stuff. That is, as we look at verse six, he who started a good work in you will see it to completion until the day of Christ, the sovereignty of God. But for Paul, there's no contradiction between human participation in the gospel and the sovereign hand of God. That is that in the same breath, in the same 13, 14 verses that he can say, God is going to do it, yet I want you to do this. 
God will see it done, but I want you to do this. And so we build ourselves up with the gospel. We pray for ourselves and for one another, and we allow the weight of our perseverance to fall upon the shoulders of a good and strong God. Because if I look at Genesis chapter 1, he's really good at making things really good. And he's doing that in you right now. Let's move forward to Philippians chapter 2, verse 14 through 18. And it says this, Do everything without grumbling and arguing. And all the parents said, So that you may be blameless and pure, children of God, who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world, by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Beloved, we are to offer up our entire lives because Emmanuel has come and is coming again. As we just looked at Paul's prayer now here in this passage, Paul wanted uh, the believers at Philippi to grow in their Christ-likeness in this present time, but to see that through to the end, that there's an end of that story. For the whole duration of their lives, the finish line was not a certain level of morality, a certain level of financial giving. It wasn't a certain influence within the city. It was the day of Christ was the finish line. Like that was the goal. That's what he wanted their minds set on because that would affect how they live now. Jesus' lordship then affects how we view lordship now. So interestingly, Paul followed up when he was talking about celebrating them on that day of Christ, their faithfulness. He said, if his suffering being poured out as a drink offering if that meant their growth and their good in the faith, he would rejoice in that. Here we have a clear picture of Paul's heart. That is to lay down one's life for the sake of the gospel is a definition of success. We recently had the Blanton family uh, return from Western Asia. And I think it's important to meditate on like, why in the world did they go? Why would Ben and Mary Beth give up very well-paying jobs, successful career, give up their support with their immediate family around them, their church family around them, be in a safe and comfortable neighborhood, good schools for their kids? Why give that up? Why liquidate all your belongings and move to a country whose economy is embarrassing and really that puts you at a financial risk? Why go to a country that does not want you to be there, that rejects the religion that you believe? Why do that? And yet, if we look at the word of God, Paul would say, God would say, you wise one. 
you chose right. So if going for them was the right thing, why in the world would they come back? Because going's not the point. It's having all of ourselves on the altar under the lordship of Jesus Christ. It's a matter of the heart. So God called the Blantons to go, and they said yes. He called the Blantons to come back, and they said yes. An equally hard decision when your kids are established in a school, and you have to pull them out. Established in a culture, and you have to pull them out. It's equally hard to do so. God is pursuing your heart and your affection. Have you put it all on the altar? Your week, your month, your finances, your children, what are you holding on to? Do you see what lordship means? If we don't view it in light of the day of Christ, we can think of Jesus as an addition to our lives, but that's not biblical. It's that he is Lord and King, that this is his world, that his glory is the only glory, and out of his grace and mercy, he has called us to rebellion, to know him and love him, that he's coming again. And so now that picture of lordship, now we see what it is for all of ourselves to be offered unto him. Later in the letter in the, at the end of chapter three, and you don't have to turn there, but Paul says this, for I've often told you and now say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction their God is their stomach, their glory is in their shame, and they are focused on earthly things. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a different citizenship, and therefore a different definition of success. It is very difficult in our affluent, prosperous culture to hold on to a biblical definition of success. Like on a daily basis, this is a fight for me. I want my landscaping and long lawn to look good. I have renovations that I would love to do on my house. I want my finances in order. I want a predictable schedule. I want to pursue my hobbies. We are offered everything we could ever want on Amazon, at the click of a button. I want more stuff. That wars against our hearts. And we need the gospel to wake us up. When we start to look at the day of Christ, and how Jesus, our Lord, defines success, now it starts to change how my life is lived now. That laying down my life for the sake of the gospel means success. That instead of jumping into the tasks at home, that I would spend time with the Lord. Instead of working extra hours, that I would pursue my wife and my child. Instead of buying extra things, I would mobilize the gospel to the nations. We need an awakening in our hearts by the word of God and the gospel of God. And the Lord in his graciousness knows that. He knows our weakness. He knows the battle. 
and he's faithful to complete that work that he started. And so yield to him, yield to his word. Offer up everything because Emmanuel has come and is coming again. Our last verse, Philippians chapter four, verse four through seven. It says this, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything, but in everything through prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. We are to rejoice in the Lord always, because Emmanuel has come and is coming again. Now, our series started with the, uh, looking at the hymn, Joy to the World. And in this message, Tim spoke on what it means to find joy in God alone. Paul exemplifies this and exhorts this in the book of Philippians. A man in chains, writing to a people persecuted, and yet commands them to rejoice. Honestly, it sounds almost cruel. Rejoice? Like, do you want me just to forget my circumstances? Paul, do you want me just to stuff down that pain? Stuff down that disappointment? What do you mean rejoice, Paul? Note the four words at the end of verse five. The Lord is near. This phrase has two meanings here. It is in light of the Lord's nearness that the Philippians who are in Christ, who worship by the Spirit of God, Philippians chapter 3, that rejoicing can occur, that they have brought, been brought into Christ, been filled with the Spirit, been forgiven of their sin, and it's in light of Jesus' second coming because of what Jesus will do that they can rejoice Rejoicing in the Lord and who we are in him now and who we will be shifts our hearts. Um, my family and I, we all got pretty sick this week. And um, yesterday I was at the office working on the sermon and my wife was super sick yesterday. And so I, I took Boaz with me, my five-year-old son, to the office. And he just, he loves to be around people, loves to be around parents, doesn't really play well on his own, which it's amazing to see him in social settings, but man, that is, can be really difficult when I just need time to do something. So of course he wanted to sit on my lap when I was in the office. He was watching Wildcrats, so I got to learn a little bit about some animals while I was working on the sermon. But I, I was feeling crummy, Boaz was sick, Joel was super sick, I'm kind of freaking out about this sermon that it's going to be a total flop. And yet the command there, rejoice in the Lord. I really didn't feel like that. And yet if we give ourselves to this, this gracious exhortation from our king, rejoice in the Lord, it begins to shift our hearts. It's one step in the direction of reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done and who he is of what really matters.
it's okay that we're sick this week. It's okay if the sermon is a flop. It's okay that our house is a disaster because nobody has any energy to do anything. It's okay. Rejoice in the Lord always. That is one of the most difficult things in my life. It's learning to set my gaze off of myself, off of my circumstances, off of my control, and to look upon the one that gives life and life eternally. I want to invite those who are doing communion uh, to come forward and to pass out the elements. I also want to invite the worship team to come forward. 